presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. All right, well, today uh, is our seventh in our session on Better Than I Deserve, and I'm, I've entitled our session today By Grace Alone, Through Faith Alone, in Christ Alone. And we're coming to the part where we talk about the whole issue of justification and sanctification. What we've been talking about is we've been, uh, we've been, just, we've been talking essentially about God's grace. And what we've looked at, uh, without going into a lot of detail, is that when God created man and the woman, He created them with great dignity. But because of the fall, we find depravity uh, coming into the world. And by depravity, we're talking, about, uh, we're talking about radical corruption. Every part of the human personality is tainted in some way by sin. But that did not uh, thwart God's plan. It didn't surprise God when sin occurred in the Garden of Eden. God had already made perfect provision for that. God, Listen, God knows the end from the beginning, so nothing ever surprises God. We don't surprise God. When we do the bonehead things that we do, when we sin, when we do all kinds of things, sometimes we'll make statements, oh, that, that, that must have disappointed God. No. The thing that brings disappointment is when we do something that someone doesn't expect. God, we can never do anything that God doesn't expect. Now, our, our sin can bring grief to God. The Bible talks about don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And the word grieve means to bring pain to God. But God was not caught by surprise by sin in the garden. In fact, if you'll notice the passage in your notes there from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and following, where you see uh, really God's glorious plan of redemption. And we discovered that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in that, that God is the one who planned it, that the Son, second person of the Godhead, is the one who, who does the purchasing, who actually redeems His people. And thirdly, we see the Spirit of God who is the one who in, comes and takes possession of God's people, He's the one who makes it real in our lives. Let's just read this little passage, and I'll make a few comments here and there, but I don't want to spend a great deal of time on this. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 4, it says, For He, God, that is God, God the Father, chose us, and the us there, obviously, uh, Paul is writing to believers, so God chose us, believers, in Him, Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. And notice, why did God do this? Why did God choose us in Christ before the foundation of the world? Why did God predestine us to be conformed to the image of His Son before the foundation of the world? Verse 6 says, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves, speaking of Christ. So it was planned by the Father, and God's intention all along was to bring Himself to glory, to show how glorious He is that even in the face of sin, 
God can work in spite of all of that. Then notice, beginning at verse 7, in Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Notice, didn't just give us grace, but what does the word lavish sound like? What, is it, what, what comes to mind when you lavish? You just pour it on. It's just a whole lot which He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Verse 11, In Him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Why? Why did God do this? Why did Christ go to the cross? In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? For the praise of His glory. Notice, the reason that God planned it before the foundation of the world was for His glory. The reason the Son went to the cross to carry out the Father's wishes and to pay for all of the sins of all of God's people was for what end? That God might be glorified, that He might be praised. Verse 13, And you, believers, also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now this word seal doesn't mean the kind that goes, ooh, 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 not that kind. What does he mean when he says seal here? What's he talking about? Yeah, a, a seal, like, like the seal on a document. In fact, this word seal is a word that is translated, I think the old King James Version uses the word, uh, he's the earnest. If you buy a house or you buy, uh, you're going to buy a car, you know, there's a, there's a big run on that. There's a brand new model of automobile that comes out. And you've seen that, oh, you've been to the last, last James Bond movie and you saw it and you just got to have one of those cars. So you run down to the, I think it's a BMW place now, and you see, well, oh, this is just right, but people are practically standing in line to buy those automobiles. So what is it that you have to do in order to be sure that they're not going to sell that car out from under you? What do you give them? Earnest money. Earnest, that's right, a down payment. Earnest money. And what does that down payment say? What does that earnest say? It says there is more to come. And that's the reason the Spirit is called the earnest of our inheritance. He takes up residence within us. And it's a promise that there is more to come that He's only the down payment. In fact, the same word here that's used as guarantee or earnest or seal is the same word that's used in, um, in common Greek that means uh, engagement ring. And what is an engagement ring? It's a promise. And what is an engagement ring promise? It promises that there's more to come, that there's going to be a wedding ring, that I'm going to give you everything that I have. My wife often says, everything you have is mine, and everything I have is mine. And uh, it, of course, she's kidding when she says that. But it says, having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, there's that word, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And notice the purpose ultimately is what? To the praise of His glory. But God seals His people by the Holy Spirit. And that's an important thing. So the, the reason I bring that up again, right here in, in the first 14 verses of the, the letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you really see a summary of God's plan of redemption. 
that when sin occurred in the Garden of Eden, it did not take God by surprise. God had already planned what He was going to do. God had already purposed that the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son, would come, take on human flesh, and die for all the sins of His people. And God had already purposed that in time and space, the Spirit of God would come and effectually call His people to Himself, taking up residence with Him as the seal, as the guarantee that there would be more to come. See, when God saves us, what He does is He redeems our spirit. He brings our old dead spirits to life. Remember the Bible says we were dead in trespasses and sins. And God brings our spirits to life. Now what happens to our bodies? They still continue to age and they grow older until finally they just wear out and somebody else has to put us in the ground or take us to the, uh, to, to the, to the place, to some other place where we're eventually our ashes are placed in, a, uh, in an urn or something, or scattered somewhere. But one day, and what that last verse is talking about here, is that one day God will resurrect His people and He'll give us a brand new body, just like the body of Jesus. Well, it's not going to be a body without a spirit. What is God going to do? He's going to take that new spirit, that redeemed spirit that's gone to be with Him after our body dies, and He will reunite our redeemed spirit with our redeemed body, and we will be like Christ. Now, that's not going to happen until Jesus comes. That's not going to happen until the time of the resurrection. But that's something to which we can all look forward. Now, the last week or so, we've, we've talked particularly about the effectual call, and that's what this last little section that we read in Ephesians is all about. Notice the passage from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and this is from the New American Standard Version, just because it's, it, I think it's much clearer here, where Peter writes, so I just want you to realize this is not all Paul's doing. Peter says the same thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. Notice, it doesn't say that God's allowed us to be born again. What does it say? He's caused us to be. See, God is the ultimate cause. He's the one, he's the one who, as we've talked about the last two sessions, who effectually brings us to Himself. Why does God have to do that? Because we're dead in trespasses and sins. Dead people don't respond. The Bible says we're hostile toward God. We don't understand the things of the Spirit of God. So what does God do? He invades our life, just like He did Paul on, uh, Saul on the road to Damascus. He regenerates us. He brings our old dead spirits to life. And when He does that, He also grants us faith. And He grants us repentance. We're able to change our minds. Now we don't have to be hostile toward God. We have faith to express in Christ. And when we do that, then what happens is God justifies us. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. The whole issue of justification. What, what in the world is that all about? Notice, uh, and I'll introduce the subject by looking at those next two passages. There, there are two really important words that I want us to look at. And the second one is the one I want us to take most of our time with today. The first of those words, and, and I think I mentioned these in passing last time, first of those words is the word propitiation. Now that sounds like a four dollar and a half theological word. 
that only preachers ought to know about, and it really doesn't make any difference anyway. That's not really true. Uh, the word propitiation, uh, the easiest synonym for it, I guess, for us to use, is the word satisfaction. You know, that's what the Rolling Stones said they couldn't get any. Uh, propitiation. It has the idea of averting God's wrath. God was satisfied by something, and we want to talk about what that something is. In fact, I put a definition there in your notes of the word propitiation to placate wrath, to avert the danger, I'm sorry, to avert the anger of God by means of an offering. You remember in a lot of the old religions, if you remember your old Roman mythology and Greek mythology, they had uh, they just had a a, a plethora of gods. They had a god of war. He had a god of uh, agriculture. He had a god of the sea. And you know, if you were, if you if you went to college and you pledged a sorority or a fraternity, uh, you know, the, those uh, there was there was always something about one of those Greek gods that would come up in that same context. But those gods that we, of course, we know they weren't real gods. But in the minds of the Greek, many most of the Greeks they were. Uh, they were a very fickle bunch, and they were jealous of each other. In other words, when you, when you made an offering to this one, you had to be real careful, because this one over here get ticked off at you. So you had to be sure that you had to kind of keep it balanced. In other words, you had to always be placating these gods so that they wouldn't do anything nasty to you. Now, that's kind of the roots out of pagan religion. As far as the old as Judaism is concerned, the old Hebrew religion, that's one of the reasons that the tabernacle, uh, and the pattern for the tabernacle and the whole sacrificial system was given. And that was given so that, so that God could be propitiated. That is, that sin angered God. And so offerings were brought to the place of sacrifice, and when those animals' throats were cut, and some of the blood was collected, and then that blood was sprinkled before the mercy seat, uh, and the animal was burned on the fire. God was propitiated. His anger was turned away. And instead of God pouring out His anger on these folks, He didn't do that. It's the idea of turning away anger, the idea of, of satisfaction. Now, some people say, well, just, that just doesn't sound like God that God would, you know, be that ticked off. And the reason I think that a lot of times we think that is when we read the Bible, clearly in the New Testament it tells us that God is love, among other things. And that really is true. But the Bible also tells us that God is light. And that word light has the idea of purity in it. The Bible also tells us that God is not only love and light, but God is also a consuming fire. Now, that's important to remember because, see, what we do is if all we do is talk about God is love, then, you know, God is sort of like this Santa Claus grandfather figure that floats around on a cloud and everything's going to be okay, so don't worry about it, and he just dotes and all that kind of thing. On the other hand, if all we talk about is God is a consuming fire and never talk about the love of God, then we get the idea that God is hanging over the parapets of heaven and looks down there and says, Hey, Cunningham, you having a good time? He says, Yeah, Lord, it's a pretty good day. And he jams a lightning bolt down there and says, Well, cut that stuff out. You know, we get the idea that 
God is kind of a cosmic killjoy. Well, the truth is, is that all these things are true of God. And if God is loving toward His people, God is loving. But God also is a consuming fire. God is holy. That's, that's the whole idea, again, of, of light. And because God is holy, God can't tolerate sin. So God's got to deal with sin in some way. Sin's got to be put away. And that's what this whole idea of propitiation is about. Notice the passage uh, from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and following. Now this, is, again, is from the New American Standard. The writer of Hebrews says, or writes for us, Therefore, since the children, and that's talking about believers, share in flesh and blood. Now, what does that mean? That means you and I have flesh and blood. Since that's the way we are, He, Christ, the Son Himself, likewise also partook of the same. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? Of the second person of the Godhead coming and taking on human flesh. Because we are flesh and blood, He Himself also uh, likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. See, one of the great pieces of news about the gospel is that once Christ has saved us, you know, while it's still true that enemy is a, it, the, uh, the death is an enemy, it's the last enemy to be put underfoot, we don't have to fear death because when, when God closes His grip on our breath and our, our, that, uh, the monitor in the hospital just flatlines and there's no more brain activity, the Bible clearly declares that to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. We're with Christ immediately. He says, so we don't have to fear death. That doesn't mean, say, oh, goody, it's getting close to that time. No, he's not talking about that. But he's saying, we don't have to be slaves to it. We don't have to cower in fear and say, oh, my, what's going to happen after that? Man, I hope I'm okay. You know, is it, is it going to be like there's a balanced scale up there and God's going to put all my good stuff on one side and all my bad stuff on the other side? And if my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff, I'll be all right. And then if it, oh, how do, how do I know? None of that. Because Christ has taken all of the sins of all of these people. And so if there is a balance scale, when God pulls up the balance scale of His people, there's nothing on the bad side because it's already been paid for through Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about or begin to talk about here in a minute as we talk about justification. Notice it says, For assuredly He does not give help to angels. Why not? Well, he didn't come in the form of an angel, did he? What did he? He came in the form of what? A human being. He doesn't give help to angels. But notice this. Now this is important. But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. You see, most of the time, we just read over that and don't think anything about it. Why didn't the author say, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the, to the descendant of Adam? If he'd said to the descendant of Adam, that would have been everybody everywhere. But Christ didn't come for that. He came to give help to the descendant of Abraham. Now what is it that Abraham is known for more than anything else? He's the father of faith. That's right. He's the father of faith. So he's talking about he came to give help to those who believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the point he's making. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become, notice, a merciful 
and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. See, Jesus is the high priest. What does the high priest do in the Old Testament? He represented God to the people and he represented the people to God. Well, one of the problems with the old priests in the, in the Old Testament was that they would get older and die. And they had sins themselves. So now Jesus is the great high priest who has come, who is God himself in human flesh, so he represents God perfectly. You want to know what God is? Look at Jesus. But at the same time, he's 100% human, and he knows what it feels like to hurt. He knows what it feels like to be thirsty. He knows what it feels like to be tempted. He knows what it feels like to suffer. And so he can represent us to God. He's the perfect high priest. And of course, he, uh, after subsequent to his resurrection, he'll never die. And it goes on to say, he says that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Why? To make propitiation, to make a satisfactory offering, to avert the anger of the Father for the sins of the people. Now, don't, 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 don't make the mistake of thinking this, that, well, the God of the Old Testament is an angry God, and when Jesus came, he's the jolly one of love. And so what Jesus is doing is he came to kind of get God to turn around and, and be nice to us. Nothing could be farther, uh, further from the truth. Because the truth is, what we just read in Ephesians chapter 1, is who planned redemption in the first place. It was the Father. And he's the one who sent the Son. So it's not the Son trying to win the Father back. It's that all the persons of the Godhead are involved in this and God is working out His plan for His people. Notice that next passage from 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, again from the New American Standard. He says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, one of the things that I really like about the New American Standard, and, and uh, if you're going to do any serious study of the Bible, is I think it is the uh, version to use. Anytime the translators added anything to that text, they all, it was always put in italics. Notice in this passage, the words to be are in italics. That meant it wasn't in the original text, but the, but the translators put it in there to try to help the sentence make more sense to us. Let's read it without that. Notice what it says, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, the propitiation for our sins. Christ is the satisfaction for our sins. He is the one who turned away the anger of the Father. How did He do that? Because the anger of the Father was poured out where? On Him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time in all of eternity, these two persons of the Godhead are not face to face anymore. It's as though the Father, and indeed He had, turned His back on the Son because the Son had become the sin offering. All of the sins of all of God's people were placed on Christ. And God's anger was poured out on the Son not because the Son had done anything wrong, but because now the Son was the sin-bearer for all of God's people. And having poured out that anger, God's wrath is averted. God's wrath is placated. 
And now God reaches out to His people in grace and mercy and love and kindness and goodness. All the things that Jesus merited because of His perfect life, but none of the things that we merited because of our sinful life, but because of what Christ did, because God credited all our sins to His account through faith in the finished work of Christ and who He is, God credits all of the merits of Christ to our account. And that's what the word justification is all about. Justification. We don't generally use it in those kind of terms. We say, what young lady, what was your justification in doing so and so? Well, you know, and what we're looking for is some sort of, some sort of explanation of some kind. The word justification, and I'll put, again, put this in your notes because it is so extremely important. The word justification means this. It means to declare righteous. That's, and that's impo- the operative, two, two important words, declare and righteous. It's the, it's, in justification, God doesn't make us righteous. That's what God does when He sanctifies us. He makes us righteous. What God does in justification is He declares us righteous. It's the picture of the judge sitting behind his bench and all of the charges are brought. Said The old devil comes up there and he's the accuser of the brethren. And there I am, you know, I'm, I got my shackles on. I got a shackle around my neck. My wrists are chained. My feet are chained. I got chains hanging all over me. And I mean, I am as guilty as I can be. And, uh, and the picture is, well, what do you plead? You know, well, I, I, I have to plead guilty. Well, and then my advocate comes to my rescue and he says, but Father, I gave my life for him. He trusts in me. All, the, all of the merit that I am now goes to him. And God takes his gavel and he bangs down that gavel and he says, acquitted, not guilty. Am I not guilty because I'm not a sinner? No, I'm no longer guilty because of what Christ has done for me, that He's borne all of my, all of my penalty. If you, go to the, uh, if you go out to lunch today, well, let's, say, uh, let's say three or four of us decided to go out to lunch uh, today, uh, immediately after the study. We went somewhere and uh, you know, we had lunch and then all of a sudden I realized, oh goodness, I've got to meet somebody at the office for a counseling session. So on the way out, what I do is I just pay the whole check. I'm such a generous guy. I just pay the check for all four of us. And uh, the, the other three of you, you just stay there at, uh, at the restaurant and visit and have a good time. Oh, yeah, I'd like some more tea. Could, could we get some more of those old cathead biscuits too while we're at it? And you just stay there another 20, 30, 45 minutes just talking and having a great time. Meanwhile, I've gone. I've gone on back, but I've already paid the, uh, I've paid the bill. And you start to leave. And they say, wait a minute, you can't leave now, you've got to pay. Now, if they insist on you paying, is that fair? No, because it's already been paid. You see, that's what Christ has done. He's already paid. That's the reason for God's people, we don't have to pay. Not because it wasn't due, it was due for our sin, but Christ has already paid it. Now, it's a judicial act. Again, it's not a, not a process. Notice the passage from Romans chapter 3, and again, this is from the New American Standard Bible. 
And you're going to see both of these words, the word propitiation and the word justification used in here. Remember, propitiation has the idea of satisfaction. It's to avert the wrath of God, to placate God's wrath. Why do we have to placate God's wrath? Because God is holy and righteous and pure, and sin offends God. Justification, what we're talking about there again, is to declare righteous. And it's the idea of being declared that we are now in right standing with God. I'm no longer in wrong standing because of my sin. That God declares me to be in right standing with Himself. Not because of who I am, not because of what I've done, but strictly on the merit of what Christ has done and who He is. Notice this passage now from Romans 3, beginning at verse 19. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says... Now the word law here means what? He's talking about what law? Yeah, God's law, the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to Moses. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Remember, the law was not given to save us. It was given us to show us not only the perfection of God, but it shows us how impure we are because we can't live up to it. You say, well, I never committed adultery. I never stole anything. You ever coveted? Sure. And the truth is, is that Jesus pushed it even farther and said, look, if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. If you've, if you, uh, if you've hated your brother, you've killed him already. See, Jesus took the law and pushed it to the nth degree. And his purpose, and again, the purpose of the law was never to save. The purpose of the law is to condemn. It shows us what sinners we are. It's like a mirror. We look in that mirror and say, whoa, I am undone. And that should drive us to the Savior. He goes on to say, verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified. No person will be declared righteous. No person will be declared in right standing in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's how we, that's how we know we're wrong. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is, the, the old Moses and the prophets they foresaw this. In fact, we're going to look at a passage in Isaiah in just a few minutes. They foresaw this. They didn't understand it, but they foresaw it. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Notice, you can't be justified apart from faith in Christ. But how do we get faith to place it in Christ? That's the gift of God. When God brings our dead souls to life, He gives us repentance and faith we express that faith in Christ and He justifies us. He declares us to be in right standing with Himself. He goes on to say, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, being declared righteous as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And that's the only way we can be declared in right standing with God is through faith in Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Now, when did God display Him publicly? What event? The cross. 
there's Jesus. Uh, he wasn't wearing a little rag around his waist, around his, uh, around that region. He was he was naked as he hung on that cross, rejected by man, rejected by God. God had turned his back on him, displayed publicly as what? As a propitiation, as a sacrifice that was to turn away the wrath of God from his people. God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Well, how does that demonstrate God's righteousness? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, what does Paul mean when he writes that? He says, well, people would look and say, well, you know, God must not be real keen on dealing with sin. After all, the last time anything really significant happened was back in Noah's day when God killed everybody except Noah and the folks that were on the boat with him. You know, oh, there have been some times like at Sodom and Gomorrah when, rain, when God rained hey, uh, brimstone and fire down and, you know, wiped out a couple of places. But, but God's not so serious about sin. Don't make such a big deal. After all, God is love. Don't worry about all this other stuff. And God says, well, and, and Paul is reminding us here, look, people may have thought that for years. They may have thought that for millennia. But God is serious about sin, and sin is an extremely serious thing to deal with. And the way God shows how serious He is about it is look what He did to His Son. His Son died. He became the propitiation. He was the one who turned away God's anger, the anger that was directed at me, the anger that was directed at you. He goes on to say, verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just, that is, that God would be seen to be righteous, that God would seem to be right. Look, why couldn't God just say, look, look, I know you guys down there on the earth are doing the best that you can. So I tell you what, I'm just going to let you slide this time. You say, boy, that would have really been loving of God. But what would that tell us about God's purity and holiness? It said thumbs down to that man, you know. And it really would have done some awful things to the, character, to, to the character, the essence of who God is. So God had to deal with this. He had to deal with sin. And now, by pouring out His anger on His Son on the cross, God is seen to be just. That is, God is dealing with sin. He evermore is dealing with sin. But also, He is the justifier the one who declares righteous. Whom does he justify? The one who has faith in Jesus. Now one of the best illustrations of this in all of the Bible is the example of Abraham. Remember that if you read the book of Joshua and Joshua chapter 24, you discover that uh, Abraham, well his name back then was Abram, which meant uh, exalted father. The word Abraham, the name Abraham means father of a multitude. Uh, both of those names were sort of uh, strange for this man to have for one reason in particular. And what was that? Yeah, yeah, not only age. He didn't have any kids when, uh, when God named him Abraham. His, you know, his mom and dad named him, or dad named him Abram, exalted father. Can you imagine this guy meeting with all these herdsman friends? And you know, they introduce each other and say, oh, what's your name? So, uh, my name's Exalted Father. Oh, really? Tell us about your children. So, well, I really don't have any children. 
And then later on, God changes His name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And can you imagine it? Oh, tell us about all your children and grandchildren. So, well, I really don't have any kids. Well, why is your name this? But God had a plan, and God was going to give him children. In fact, they were going to be like the sand of the seashore. But God brings him out of idolatry. There he is, an idolater, uh, near the Euphrates River in the land of uh, in the city of Ur, in the land of the old land of Mesopotamia. And God, that's the effectual call where God just pulls him right out of that. He doesn't say to him, "Now, Abram, if you'll straighten up, I'll consider doing something for you." No, he just reaches down in there, just like he did with old Saul of Tarsus, snatches him right out of that situation, and uh, Abraham, Abram goes up to Haran. God makes a covenant with him. He says, and we see that in Genesis chapter 15. Notice the passage there, um, right-hand column of your notes. The word of the Lord came to him, and God tells him what he's going to do. He says he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In other words, here's the promise. You're going to have, you're going to have children like the, like the stars in the sky. And notice what Abram does. Abram did what? He believed the Lord. And when he believed the Lord, what did God do? And he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. That's justification. God declared him to be righteous. The, 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 all of the merit of Christ is given to us. It was given to Abram at this point, even though Christ had not, uh, had not come. Notice what Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 4. He says, what shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, that is by the stuff he could do, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Notice that's, that's a quotation from the passage that we just read in, in Genesis 15. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift. In other words, you, uh, you go out and you work uh, in somebody's office, you put in your 37 and a half hours, or however it is that, that you, uh, that long that you work, and then on the 15th and the 30th, you get a paycheck, or on Friday afternoon, you get a paycheck, however they do it, those are your wages. You don't have to say thank you when they hand you the paycheck. Why? Because you've earned it. You work well. Some of some you may have worked harder sometimes than you did others, but the idea is you've earned it. He says, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Your employer, the person for whom you work, owes that to you. However, to the man who does not work, now that doesn't mean goof off, but he's saying, forget about the works part. To the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. See, that's justification. If what happened at the cross, let's, uh, let's do it. I, I know we've touched on this before. But let's touch on it again. Here you've got, uh, you know, you've got God the Father who is holy, and you've got humans down here who are sinful. And there's no way that sinful humans and holy God can come together. Their sin just keeps them apart. They are just poles apart. We try building all kinds of bridges, 
just like the people uh, were trying to, uh, uh, in that ziggurat there in Babylon, the Tower of Babel, trying to make their way up to God, and it just won't work. How much is enough? You know, how often do I have to go to church? How much do I have to put in the plate? How often do I have to go visit? How many verses a day do I have to read? How much is enough? And the Bible says, works won't work. Not at all. So what God does is He takes the initiative and He super He He sends His Son. And His Son is a sacrifice comes as a sacrificial offering. And what God does is He places all of the sins of all of His people on Christ. And then Jesus dies. And He dies not for His sins, but for the sins of all of God's people. And then all of the righteousness that Jesus Himself is, He's perfect in every way. He never sinned. He always did what was pleasing to the Father. That very righteousness is credited to the believing sinner, to the one who is trusting in Christ. That's justification. Some people say justification means just as if I never sinned. That's not true. God doesn't say it's just as if you never sinned. He says, I know you sinned, but your sins have been paid for in full by the person of Jesus Christ. And when we trust in Him, all of that righteousness is credited to us. It's kind of like having a, I guess it's kind of like a, a, what do they call that in accounting? A double ledger or something? But anyway, you're constantly moving things from one side to the other, and all of the sin that's on our side on the believer's side, is moved over to Christ's side. And all of the righteousness that He is is moved over to the side of the believing sinner. And what we're going to be talking about in the next couple of sessions is exactly what transpired here on the cross. How is it that, that God went about doing this? There's a... Uh, we obviously have got only about two more minutes, so let me just... Uh, point you to one thing. Look in the left-hand column at the passage from Isaiah. And it really is, a, it points out the fact that, that this was known in the Old Testament, although it was not known that it was going to be Jesus of Nazareth. The, the, uh, the prophets didn't realize that. Notice from Isaiah 53, Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. People looked up at Jesus and said, Look at that. He's a, he must be a sinner. He wouldn't be on that cross up there right now. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then look at verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The Father will be propitiated. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. See, even in the Old Testament, again, this was the plan of God all along. So what do we conclude from all of this? Just to look at a couple of things in the summary and the conclusion, and then we'll be through for today. 
Uh, again, justification is the declaration by God that the believing sinner is acquitted of his or her sins and the righteousness of Christ having been, has been credited to that person. It's an act. It's not a process, a judicial act. That is, it's forensic, and it's based upon the obedience of Christ Jesus himself. What it does is it brings God's love, uh, God's mercy, and God's justice together. Yes, God is holy and God is righteous and just and demands that sin be punished. But it brings that to, but the cross brings together with that the love of God because that's what we see in the cross of Christ is God sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. And all those who put their faith in Christ, all those who say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, mean it from the bottom of their heart. Those are credited with the very righteousness of Christ and God says acquitted. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now we'll talk about what that means in detail in the next couple of sessions that come up. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.